Diesel Performance Podcast contains explicit language. Thank you for joining us again. This is Paul Wilson. And I'm Danny Voss. And you're listening to the Diesel Performance Podcast. Uh, we've had a lot of requests for our guest today, huh, Danny? Man, this show has been a long time coming. Yeah, absolutely. So today we have on Guy Tripp of SoCal Diesel. How are you today, Guy? I'm doing great. How are you, Paul? Danny, great to, uh, great to have the opportunity to chat with you guys. Absolutely. We're, I'm doing excellent, man. I, I'm so excited to talk to you about Duramax Motor Builds. And I'm doing so good. I mean, not one bad thing can take me down. <laughs> <laughs> what got you started in diesel performance? Honestly, uh, I bought a Duramax pickup to tow my NASCAR late model back and forth to the racetrack. Yeah. Yeah. Fundamentally, you know, going up those long grades with a 38-foot car hauler in my gas-powered truck, I was watching all the diesel guys just leave me behind and get better mileage so i was either you know get beat or join the join the group so what kind of what was your first diesel uh 2003 uh lb7 you know crew cab four-wheel drive long bed again tow vehicle for the for the boat and for the race car hauler that's awesome that's awesome absolutely i love the old lb7s it's amazing how many people we talk to that that was their first truck and it still is their truck yeah. yeah, Jacob yeah. White is still rocks one. Yeah, driving the first one ever. Right. Okay, um, so guy, tell me about your progression from there. So you got in, you got a, a diesel truck to start towing things. How did you get into working at SoCal and working on engine builds? Fundamentally, you know, um, I had a 25-year career in the gas performance industry. So primarily as a cylinder head engineer. So I designed aluminum cylinder heads for for racing applications. Uh, I remember reading all the engineering articles that were coming out in the late 90s that were talking about this new diesel power pickup truck or diesel engine called the Duramax that GM was working on. And let's face it, I mean, the GM diesels prior to that were pretty disgusting. I mean, the 6.2s and 6.5s, for most Garbage. of us guys towing stuff, they weren't even a consideration. You know, it was either a Ford or a Cummins. Absolutely. You guys are hurting my feelings. I just bought a 6.5. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. Just kidding. Yeah. There's always room for classics, man, you know. <laughs> I don't want to be that guy to try to prove everybody wrong. Like uh, Charlie Keeter proved everybody wrong with the six liter. I mean, how much did that cost him? Exactly. Exactly. But, hey, he proved his point. He did. Fair enough. Okay. So, so you did cylinder head engineering, and then you started to get into the diesel side of it. How far did you take your first truck? You know, it was, uh, it was like anything else I owned. Uh, I just have to modify it and make it my own. Uh, I mean, it didn't matter if it was, uh, you know, my daily driver, my truck. I mean, heck, even my jet ski in 1985 had nitrous oxide on it. My man. <laughs> I knew I liked this guy. So that was after I had already, you know, milled, it, milled the head for more compression and ported the, you know, it was a two-stroke engine, ported the transfer ports, you know, did all the stuff I could to the engine. And uh, the thirst was still there for more. And, of course, the only thing left on the table was... Uh, with some nitrous. So, uh, yeah, it was a pretty impressive little ski back then. But uh, <laughs> fundamentally, you know, on the Duramax side, I just started looking at stuff to make it my own. You know, what's available? You know, wheels and tires, shocks, and uh, not knowing anything about diesels, I just picked up a magazine and went, hmm, you know, look at this. Uh, you, can, uh, you can put a chip on these things. You can plug this little module in under the hood and pick up, you know, 75, 80 horsepower. And, and I got to tell you guys, I mean, from the gas engineering side, having spent, I don't know, countless hours on the engine dyno and at the racetrack, when somebody tells you you can plug something in under the hood and pick up 80 horsepower, I laugh. I mean, I literally spit my soft drink across my computer keyboard. I mean, I just couldn't <laughs> believe they were making those kind of claims. 
That's but, you know, hilarious. I, I had to buy one. You know, I had to try it out. So, uh, you know, bought it, plugged it in one day at lunchtime when it came in, went out to get a burger, and uh, about the time the truck came up to 160 degrees on the water temperature was the magic number uh, for the power to kick in. I stepped on the throttle, and holy crap, I was really amazed. This thing was burning tires and shifting gears, and I thought, hmm. This diesel stuff is pretty intriguing. I, I got to look a little bit more into this and learn about it. Absolutely. Our listeners have requested for us to have this show today. So we're going to go ahead and dedicate this show to anybody working on a stock bottom end of their diesel truck. But first, I want to take a moment and listen from our sponsors. This is Nick with Calibrated Power Solutions. We're happy to sponsor the podcast because we believe knowledge is power. Everyone in the diesel performance aftermarket needs accurate, fact-based information to get the most out of their truck, you included. So be sure to check out calibratedpower.com or duramaxtuner.com for reliable info that you can count on. And if you'd like to talk to us, give us a call, 815-568-7920. That's 815-568-7920. Back to the podcast. Absolutely. And Guy, we were just talking a little bit about how you had gotten started in diesel. And I think now the first thing that we always want to get back to is find out a little bit more specifically about what made this Duramax motor so different or maybe what still makes the Duramax motor different from other diesels. The thing that I was intrigued about, uh, again, reading those engineering articles was the fact of all, all the breakthroughs, you know, all the pioneering GM was doing. First of all, it was an aluminum-headed diesel engine in a light pickup truck, which was unheard of. It was four valves per cylinder. Again, getting peak airflow with multiple valves, but keeping the port small and the velocity up, which meant good throttle response. We weren't waiting around for the engine to do something. Um, and then the Bosch common rail injection system. I mean, oh my gosh, that was something that just set the diesel world on its ear when it came out. <laughs> uh, and along with that, it was the first one with a bore that was bigger than its stroke. So all of these things kind of intrigued me from the standpoint that this was going to have all the power and torque of a diesel engine, but it was going to act more like a gas engine as far as the drivability goes. And I think that really is that kind of uniqueness that Duramax brought. When, when it was released in 2001, the first Duramax, it really was a game changer. The, the LB7 broke so many molds and set so many new standards for the community. Everybody changed after it. Oh, yeah, the LB7's the new 12-valve. <laughs> oh, they had to to keep up. I mean, let's face it. I mean, it broke Ford. Ford yeah. had that wonderful 7.3 engine. They had to go and completely redesign an engine to even keep up. And, of course, Cummins, another great engine. Hey, they were forced to go to four-valve and, you know, common rail stuff. In other words, just to keep up with mileage, of course, meet emissions, and, uh, and to match the power that the Duramax had. Absolutely. So, as far as... We all know the different Duramaxes, LB7 to LML. Maybe you can talk about some of the weak links and solutions of each model Duramax. We can start with the LB7. Uh, what would you say rods? Probably your biggest hang-up Well, on you know, that. fundamentally, architecturally speaking, the Duramax is pretty similar across all the models. Um, the biggest problem, I think, with the LB7s is, you know, let's face it, guys, the injectors. As revolutionary as the common rail system was, having that short, squatty little injector under the valve cover, uh, I mean, my, my personal truck, I went through a set of injectors every 40,000 miles. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that's, to this day, that's one of those drawbacks. Uh, uh, in talking to Bosch engineers, you know, it kind of became clear, you know, there were some, 
some definite shortcomings on that injector, which they, which they cured. You know, they, they reacted to it and went to the LOI, so, so they got that solved. Um, LOI was basically the same engine, same rod, same piston, same crankshaft. Um, they improved the injectors, which is fantastic. Uh, and, and really the, link, the weak point on that was the fuel injection control module. Um, you know, that was kind of the amplifier that took the low-volt signal from the ECM and amplified it up and sent it on to the injectors. And to this day, that's probably the most common part that we sell for a guy that's got a tow vehicle that, you know, really isn't interested in a high-performance vehicle, but he's trying to maintain this thing is, hey, man, my fuel injection control module, you know, went out. Can you guys supply another one? Right. You know, moving on to the LBZs, this is where things got interesting. Um, I think this was an accounting situation, to be honest, but there was a piston change. Um, and and the, the original pistons uh, were set aside in favor of this new piston design. And the unique feature about this new piston design is that it had a bronze bushing in the wrist pin area. Um, so the interesting thing about that is looking at the manufacturer of these pistons, uh, every piston they make, whether it was for the Duramax or you know, some other big industrial application, the signature of this manufacturer was this bronze bushing. Well, when the piston's at bottom dead center, there's not a whole lot of clearance on the LB7 and LLY motors between the piston and the counterweight on the crankshaft. And when they put this bronze bushing in the piston, now they had a piston interference problem. It would literally interfere with the crankshaft. And so somebody had the brilliant idea to, excuse me, machine the counterweights down to create more clearance. Well, the problem this created was the piston is now 100 grams heavier than the predecessor. Mm-hmm. They've now taken a weight away from the crankshaft to make clearance for the piston, which meant now they have to add additional weight to the harmonic damper and additional weight to the flywheel, creating more weight outside of the bearings of the block and the crankshaft. So now we've got a lot of weight that's swinging around out there just to make room for and to make up for the fact that they went to this new piston. And I think, you know, the crankshaft failures that happened after that, uh, there was a great percentage more crank failures in the LBZs and LMMs than there ever was on the Ys and 7s. I would definitely agree with you on that model, but what about the LBZs and LMMs cracking pistons? Same thing, yeah. The piston overall was a beautiful work of art to look at. Uh, The bronze bushing was beautiful, the actual piston itself was beautiful, but... Sometimes beautiful doesn't translate into strong, and, and they certainly had their issues um, with the pistons as well, uh, which, again, in the aftermarket, you kind of scratch your head and you look at it and try and understand what were the engineers at GM thinking about when they went to this piston? What were they trying to achieve? And, and quite frankly, guys, looking back at some of the financial struggles that GM was going through at the time, I got to believe it was strictly a monetary thing. It was just an accounting. It was a way to save money on the pistons, which which really proved to kind of bite them in the end. Man, yeah. keep the pencil pushers out of the motor room. Exactly. <laughs> okay, how about the LMLs? What's the weak link on the LMLs? Interesting thing about the LMLs. So, again, in the aftermarket, you're trying, to, you're trying to figure out what the engineers are thinking when they did this, and then the LML comes out. And the big change on the LML was the piston. They went back. They got rid of that piston with the bronze bushing. They went back to a lighter piston. And the interesting thing they did is they narrowed the area of the piston underneath the crown of the piston where the rod went. They narrowed the rod up, the small end of the rod where the wrist pin goes through, and they added material to the piston that they had removed from the rod. In other words, they made clearance for that. So that 
inherently made the piston so much stronger. The piston was actually lighter than the 7s and Ys, and they went back to larger counterweights on the crankshaft. They got weight off the dampener, weight off the flywheel, brought it all internal where it belonged. And in my opinion, best engine yet. The narrow rod bushing, a little bit less surface area, but I think in the end, not really an issue for a stock one. More, more an issue of us in the aftermarket trying to make big power and big cylinder pressure. But as far as a factory engine at factory power levels, oh, man, best engine yet. Agreed. So, so what do you think about guys using LML pistons and rods in an LBZ build? Do you think it's worth it, or should they just spend more money and get something forged or cryo-dipped or something else? D-lip yeah, something. I, don't, I don't think it's really worth it if they're going to make you know, a decent amount of power. Again, looking at that surface area, um, it's not a question of if, it's just when that bushing in the rod is going to wear out, because we've taken surface area away, and now they're sometimes doubling or even tripling the amount of cylinder pressure. So it's going to hammer that rod bushing out sooner rather than later. And the factory rods are only going to stand up to a certain amount of power anyway. Well worth it to go with aftermarket components. Totally. Agree. What is your job title over there at SoCal? I am uh, president, CEO, and uh, head janitor. So <laughs> I uh, I take out the trash, and as president, I get to decide when to take out the trash. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm plant manager over here. I water all the plants. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. I do a I like damn that. Can good I use job. that? You can use that. You betcha. But you have to pay him a dollar each time you use it. <laughs> Very oh. good. We'll, yeah. I'll send over the contract. There you go. <laughs> okay, guys, so everybody knows you for motor builds. Walk us through what are the options on a motor build in a Duramax? Oh, the options are endless. Uh, honestly, what we've been engaged in um, with the Duramax, and this is true with any new engine, is, uh, is what I call failure engineering. So getting back to that original LB7, um, as a performance engine builder and engineer in the gas world, um, I had to kind of explore the limits of this LB7. Uh, the first thing I did was, you know, buy every chip that was available and go to the chassis dyno and start running each one of them. And you had some of them that would flash the ECM, some of them that would plug in under the hood. And then it became clear that you could kind of stack these two and get not the sum of both, but the best kind of of both. Uh, I learned pretty quickly that the stock head bolts weren't up to the task. So having a great relationship with, uh, with ARP, I went to them to get you know, head studs made for the Duramax. Um, fundamentally, we've just taken it one step at a time from there um, and pushed the limit on the Duramax. And each time we find a failure point, we engineer a new part. We either partner with a company that is an expert in their field, um, or if there's nobody there that makes it, SoCal Diesel is primarily a manufacturing facility. So we have uh, a whole shop full of CNC machines, programmers. Um, we manufacture the part in-house, and then we offer it to the Duramax community. So it really comes down to power level, you know, head studs, main studs, uh, billet main caps, you know, aftermarket rods, pistons. I mean, all the way up to billet aluminum blocks and stroker cranks. I mean, the list of options goes on and on and on. Okay, let's dive into some of those parts. Certainly. Can you explain how to select the cam? Sure. Uh, you know, again, camshaft is uh, kind of a function of what the customer wants to do with his vehicle. And what we try to do here, uh, we've got every technician on our phone, uh, our phone bank is capable of not only building an engine himself, but his job is to get to know the customer and what the customer wants or needs out of his truck. It doesn't do us any good to suggest parts 
to sell a customer parts or sell him his engine that makes, you know, 2,000 horsepower at the rear wheels if all he's going to do is tow his toy hauler up and down, you know, the highway. So we really want to understand what the customer is going to do with his truck, and then we can help fit him into the parts that he needs. Important to note, at SoCal Diesel, none of the technicians are on commission. Um, so they're not about selling the guy everything in our catalog. They're about finding exactly what he needs for, for his particular application. And the camshaft is a big part of that. You know, let's talk about what RPM, where his power level needs to be, and what he's going to use the truck for. And then we can tailor lift, duration, lobe separation, for really for what the customer wants to do with his truck. Can you maybe give us an example of what kind of customers match up to what type of cams or what type of yeah. setups would utilize a larger cam or things like that? Yeah, certainly. Our, our, our most popular cam to this, to this day is, uh, is our part number 3388, and, and that's kind of what we call our baby cam. Um, that camshaft was actually one of the first cams I designed for the Duramax, and it was, it was designed in a way that we could get the maximum duration and maximum lift without having to cut valve pockets in the piston. And, uh, and so I spent a lot of work on that. And back in the original, you know, the early days of sled pulling when the Aurora 5000 turbocharger and a set of SoCal ported heads and our 3388 camshaft, I mean, that was pretty easy to make 800 horsepower at the rear tire. That was Now it. people that... would kind of laugh at that combination. It's actually become more of a, a, a towing application than it has an all-out <laughs> race application. Uh, and then after that, you know, the guy, the guy wants a little bit more than that. Um, then we're looking at probably our 6480. Uh, that camshaft is affectionately called the, the big brother to the 3388. And fundamentally, the duration stays the same, but we increase the lift. It takes advantage of the flow of the cylinder head. It now requires pockets in the piston, but we get a lot of area under the curve, and we really get, we extend the power range. We don't really sacrifice anything on the bottom, but with more lift, we extend the power range on up for the guy that's, you know, maybe a twin turbo, going to tow a lot, but also wants to go out and race on the weekends and have fun. Moving I, on from that, yeah. you get into our, our 9100 cams, which is really the beginning of our race, uh, our race generation of camshafts. Okay. So what's different between the 9100 and, I'm sorry, the 3380? Did I get that right? 3388, yeah. I'm sorry, 3388. Uh, basically lift and duration. Um, you know, with the 9100, we're holding the valves open longer. Um, we get more peak power, but now we're sacrificing down in the lower end. So 9100 isn't going to be one of those camshafts you want to put in a, in a vehicle that you're going to tow a lot with. Okay. okay. Why do people I, – I understand you got to key the crank, but why would somebody want to key their camshaft? What benefit does that bring? Oh, that's a great question. Um, interestingly enough uh, – there's a dowel pin, an alignment pin, on the front of the crank and the front of the cam. Um, they're both five millimeters in diameter. And what we found is as you move the RPM up, um, you put in, you know, triple disc converters, you know, good billet converters that have good lockup, and you start to get into more abrupt RPM changes. So the motor, let's say, is at 4,000 RPM and you have a gear shift or a converter lock, and all of a sudden the RPM changes drastically. What happens is those dowel pins were just meant for alignment purposes. They weren't meant to take the forces of the gears when you had that kind of an abrupt RPM change. So we start to see those pins start to get bent and shear because the contact point is very, very small. I mean, you know, five millimeter, you know, that's just that's less than a quarter inch in diameter. It's really small. 
So by machining that out and putting in a key, a Woodruff key, now you're spreading those forces out over a much larger surface area, and that obviously you know keeps it from shearing that pin. That was a way better answer than Paul could ever gave. Yeah, I was just going to say it makes it stronger. Shut up and pay for it. <laughs> All right, so let's talk pistons. Um, God, every motor build I've ever quoted, right. guys have about 100 questions on pistons. Can you give some of the popular options out there for pistons and maybe let us know why some of them are better or what people should be looking for? Yeah, you know, we were really, we're really kind of fortunate to be involved in um, one of the first 1,000 rear-wheel horsepower builds on an LB7 back in the 0405 range. Um, this truck's name, and you can probably Google it and find kind of a little bit of a history of it, but the name of the truck was called Nasty Girl. And, boy, we learned quite a lot uh, about what we needed to do to make pistons live under, you know, 100 pounds of boost and, and that kind of rear-wheel horsepower back then. Um, so we started out by removing the lip um, on the inside of the piston. Um, that helped, you know, it's kind of counterintuitive. In other words, while we're removing material to make the piston stronger, but the problem is with that lip hanging out in the wind there, it tend to get superheated, and then, and then it would crack. And so by removing that, we were able to transfer that heat um, more efficiently into the piston and to keep the piston from cracking. Um, it certainly extended, extended the environment, shall we say, that the piston would live in. Um, it wasn't, didn't make it an indestructible piston. Certainly, no matter what you do for the racers, they're always going to push the limit and find new ways to no. destroy stuff. No, no. <laughs> Let's get real. So, so we did that for the longest time. We would delit pistons, and then we thermal coated the tops of them, um, again, to reject heat. It, the whole thing in a diesel is just trying to keep the piston cool. Um, diesel fuel burns so slow and so hot, it really comes down to finding ways to dissipate that heat in between each uh, power cycle. Um, we moved on from there um, to being kind of hamstrung by the available piston and bowl design and oil cooling channel that was already there. So I contacted my friends at Mall Motorsports, and I asked if I could buy pistons that were just flat tops. Uh, and they, they were pretty inquisitive on what I wanted to do. Um, they agreed to sell me some flat tops. Um, I went ahead and machined my own bowls in them, and, and we did about 10 sets like that. And then Maul came up with the brilliant idea, hey, why don't we just produce a high-performance piston with better oil cooling, better bowl designs, and release that to the public, and then, you know, SoCal Diesel isn't stuck machining pistons all day long. So uh, we partnered up with Maul on that design, and that was kind of the birth when we went from cut-and-coated pistons or lip and 10 pistons, which meant remove the lip and cut 10 off the top of the piston, to the mall high-performance cast piston. And that was, that was really a boon for the customer because they could get a much better piston, a much heavier-duty piston, for a lot less money. So it worked out really in everybody's favor. Uh, moving on to there, we went into the forged piston. So, um, again, forged versus cast, right? A cast piston, we're pouring aluminum into a mold, and we're waiting for it to solidify. And it has a certain grain structure, right? The molecules are a certain distance apart. In a forged piston, we're pouring the aluminum into a mold and then we're compressing the mold, or what I like to call squish. We're squishing the aluminum together, which <laughs> creates a much denser grain structure, i.e. a much stronger piston. Are they worth the money? They certainly are in the right application. Um, again, 
Um, one of the drawbacks to the forged piston is the stock piston has a steel ring land, a steel ring groove for the ring to fit into. That is cost prohibitive to do in a forged piston. So what we do is we anodize the top ring groove. In other words, we convert the aluminum in that area to aluminum oxide, and the oxide being the key. It gives it a much better wear characteristic. When you have the ring just wearing on the, on the aluminum piston, you're going you're gonna to wear it out in no time at all under the cylinder pressures that a diesel generates. So that aluminum oxide creates a much better wear protector. Now, the other drawback to the forged piston is they tend to expand more than a cast piston. So you're going to need additional piston-to-cylinder wall clearance while the motor's cold, and then once the piston comes up to temperature, all that clearance kind of stabilizes and the piston's nice and stable inside the bore. So the drawback to the forged piston is the daily driver. Now, here in Southern California, we don't have winter. You know, we might get down into the, you know, 50-degree range, you know. (laughs) You guys have what I like to think, you know, a real winter. Negative 20 with the wind chill. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So the guy that wants to daily drive the the truck with forged pistons has an issue. He starts the thing up in the morning, and the piston is really rattling around in the bore, which is really hard on that ring groove and hard on the rings. Once the thing comes up to temperature, it's stable, no worries at all. So he drives it to work. And the truck sits and it goes, you know, cools down again to ambient air temperature. He starts it up again, maybe to go out at lunch to get a burger. Now we're back to that piston rattling around in the bore again. And then after lunch, the thing sits, he drives home, there's another cold start, and then maybe he has another cold start at the end of the day when he's going out for, you know, Cub Scout meeting or PTA meeting or something like that. So as you can see, each one of those cold starts is really hard on the piston and rings because of the additional clearance that the forged piston needs. Now, if the guy just started the thing up and drove it from California to Maine and back and never shut it off, there would be no more wear in there than there is on a stock cast piston. But it's really the cold starts that are the detriment to the forged piston. So stay out of Illinois? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. We're great so what we like at... to do is kind of draw a line in the sand on the power level. We tell the guy, look, Mr. Customer, if you're going to make 849 to 850 rear-wheel horsepower, we think the cast piston is for you. It'll be reliable, it'll last for a long time, and it'll take, up, take all the abuse you want to throw at it. If you want to make 851 at the rear tire, we really need to start talking about a forged piston, but you need to limit the cold starts. Really, that's it. I would have never thought of it, you know, to be honest with you. I would have always thought, yeah. well, I paid more, I got a forged piston, it's indestructible. Like that I think that's a pretty standard customer thought process. It's good to know that there is some more that goes into it, right? We talk yeah, about absolutely. we talk about compression a lot. Paul and I are the kings of decompressing. <laughs> I can tell you that. But as far as um, compression in a motor, is more compression better? I mean, what's the line in the sand on that? Yeah. Tell me about your decompressing method. Are you doing that by machining the piston or just shortening the rods with a lot of power? No, when he said we decompress, he meant that we know how to drink beer and decompress after work. (laughs) (laughs) We know how to party. Love it. Love it. Absolutely. Or as I like to call it, it's beer 30. That's it. That's it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, decompressing. uh, You can even see the history of of even the, the Duramax motor, the Cummins motors. As boost goes up, compression goes down. So getting back to the 6.2s and the 6.5s, you know, they had a lot of compression and very little boost. You know, they were up into the, 
you know, 20 to 1 range, if not more. And then we see the introduction of the LB7 with 17 and a half to 1 compression uh, and, and a certain amount of boost, usually about 24, 25 pounds from the factory. Moving on into the Zs and Ms, there was a reduction in compression down to 16.8 uh, and an increase in boost. That was kind of the, the introduction of the variable vane turbo on the Ys, but in the Zs, they really, really started to explore additional boost and lowering the compression. And the reason they're doing that is pumping losses, right? There's a certain amount of energy that's required to spin a motor at 1,000 RPM, 2,000 RPM, 4,000 RPM with a certain amount of compression. And so what, we, what we've done over the past is, as the boost goes up, we lower the compression. The detriment there is, on the daily driver, you really got to keep an eye on those cold starts again. So what can we get away with lowering the compression to make room for boost without causing, again, a hard starting issue for a guy that's in a winter in Illinois? All right. Okay. No, that makes sense. I mean, and that's another one of those that's kind of always out there. You know, when we talk to guys about motor builds, they want to know if their compression is going to change or if they know their compression is going to change, they want to know how it's compensated. So it's good to know that there's a balancing act that needs mm-hmm. to happen there, right? On it's everything. not just not just a, a, a quick answer. Compression, more compression or less compression is not necessarily better or worse. Um, I think engine balancing is one that might be a little bit different, though. Whenever I read threads about getting a motor built, especially a budget-build motor, somebody who's maybe doing main studs, head studs, pistons, rods, valve springs, a real simple head job, and they're pretty much calling that a motor build, right? Because they're not doing a girdle. They're not getting into delipped pistons. So they're using more on a budget standpoint. They're always asking, is it worth it to go get my motor balanced? Is it worth it to get the cam- or the crank balanced as well? Can you tell me about the balancing process and just your thoughts and the value of it? Sure, absolutely. Fundamentally, you know, when we balance the crankshaft, what we do is we assemble uh, a weight and we bolt that onto the crankshaft. It's called the bob weight. We bolt that onto the crankshaft on the rod journal and that simulates the weight of the rods, bearings, rings, pistons, everything would normally bolt up to that journal. And we bolt the flywheel, and we bolt their flex plate, and we bolt the dampener on, and we, we spin it in a machine, much like a machine you would use to balance your tires. What this does is it senses any kind of out of balance. So the production balancing is fine. If all you're doing is putting stock rings and bearings and not changing anything in the motor, it's really not necessary to rebalance. Um, I still would because the production tolerance for balancing is much wider than what we use in the performance industry. Um, out-of-balance motor typically sends some interesting vibrations through the crankshaft. And depending on where that out-of-balance is, those vibrations could be detrimental to, again, crankshaft longevity, bearings, and so on. Um, as soon as you start to move into aftermarket parts, you know, an aftermarket rod, an aftermarket piston, uh, the odds are pretty good that that's going to weigh differently than the stock parts. And so then it's a necessity, an absolute necessity to get the engine balanced. What are other important factors that are brought up or should be brought up when somebody comes to you for a motor build? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, other factors, again, we, tr- we try to understand what, what the customer is going to do with his vehicle yeah. and, and how we can help him achieve those well, goals. Let's say the guy had a complete catastrophic piston failure. 
comes to you and wants to, and nobody wants to put stock pistons back in after you had one crack because you listen to Paul going to 750 horse on LBZ. Totally I, safe. <laughs> here we go again. <laughs> to, oh, hold on, hold on. Yeah, let, let's okay. jump in there. Let, let's interrupt Danny here. We recently had a discussion, Guy. Danny and I suggested different horsepower levels for uh, for another guest that we had from yeah. Patrick Ellis um, mm-hmm. about how far he could take his LBZ. On a stock bottom end. On a stock bottom end. So he wanted to run twins, 60% injectors, and a dual fueler. I told him, put it on it, throw a built trans and a lift pump under it, some traction bars, and run the truck down the track. I told him, you're no more likely to crack a piston at that horsepower level than you are at a stock horsepower level because sometimes LBZ pistons just crack. Danny said, don't take the truck over 650 horsepower because otherwise you are dramatically increasing your chances of cracking a piston. What are your thoughts? Well, Danny, it seems you and I are on the same page. Oh, that's oh, it. Oh, yeah. Podcast over. No, we're still, we just started now. <laughs> I've been trying to tell him, and I understand that, Paul. If he had an LBZ, he would want it to be at 750. And I already told him that the next one I get, I'm an LBZ guy, I'm putting it right to 750. And when that thing cracks a piston, I'm going to come looking for his ass because I'm going to kick it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's really what it comes down to, guys. I mean, what you choose to do with your truck is, is obviously your decision. When somebody comes to, to us and, and they need a recommendation, um, I'm going to tend to err on the conservative side. I don't want to tell a guy it's okay to make 750, 800 horsepower at the rear tire and then have him bend a rod or break a piston and come back and go, but you told me it was okay. okay. So I always look at the most extreme circumstances. And we've had an opportunity to really lean on each generation of these engines, you know, all the way through. And each one of them has their limits. Obviously, the LBZ does have a little bit stronger rod, but the pistons are suspect. Some guys make 1,000 horsepower at the rear tire and never have a problem with the LBZ piston. Other guys break them at stock power level. So the key there is I think there's an inconsistency in that piston, maybe in that casting process that isn't being caught, which would make up, uh, it would account for the reason that we're having such drastically different results with that. But fundamentally, the LBZ guys, honestly, I mean, I've seen guys, I've seen guys bend rods at, at 600, 650 at the rear tire. Now, that doesn't mean the motor blew up. It just meant the rod was bent 20 thousandths or so. Right. And, and like we talked about earlier, slightly decompressed the engine, if you will. <laughs> uh, probably the most common phone call I get is, man, you know, truck's been running great. I just set my fastest time at the drags, you know, and I just pulled farther than I've ever pulled. And two weeks later, I'm on my way to work, and I'm sitting at a stoplight, and the motor goes kablammo at an idle and just spits its guts all over the ground. <laughs> well, you didn't do anything on the way to work that day, but you did shorten up that rod considerably over time while you were racing it. And then eventually, like we talked about, the clearance between that piston and the crankshaft isn't all that much to begin with. So when you start shortening those rods, next thing you know, the pistons are hitting the crankshaft and things starts to get pretty pretty catastrophic great information that, that, that exact scenario happened to me in nick pregnant's truck in his lb7 uh he ran his fastest track time ever uh-huh. one night at the drags like a tuesday we're out there drag racing with him runs the fastest track time ever and then he says i gotta take off with the kids jumps in his lml throws me the keys and says drive this thing home we made it 25 minutes out of the track before we were on the side of the road with 260 on the temp <laughs> donezo donezo it got a motor build it was 
all things became happy later, right? And they probably right. never let that down because if you get a flat tire on a freaking car trailer around here, all you hear is static. Yeah, that that's a true story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm still the one who broke Nick's truck. But all right, all right. So we have some scenarios for you, Guy. And we try to do this with all of our guests. Sure. Um, so we're going to give you, Danny and I each have one scenario here. So we're each going to give you one. And we want you to make a recommendation of what we should do in our motor build. Like what, what would you recommend to a customer here? So I'm going to let Danny get started. All right, and this is a true story. I got a 600 horsepower uh, LB7. We want to take it to 750 at the treads. S475 over Stealth 64, twin kit, 60% over injectors, dual CP3 pumps. I tow a large trailer at least three times a week. Um, I take it to elevation. What do I need to do to my motor to make that reliable? Man, that, that is just going to be a fantastic tow motor right there. I recommend one of our Stage 1 engine builds, which is going to consist of the high-performance small piston, Corilla rods, head studs, main studs, Stage 1 set of cylinder heads, um, 3388 camshaft. And I would probably O-ring the block just out of being conservative again. Let's not take a chance on having any head gasket issues down the line if we happen to step over a little bit the temperature gauge while we're right. pulling a, ta- a tall trailer. And we all know but, LB7s are known for that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, that's going to be a great tow vehicle, man. That's, that's exactly the scenario that I have in my, in my LB7 now. Really? A 475 over a Stealth 64? Yep. Nice. Nice. Yep, 60 over injectors, dual CP3s. I mean, oh, love that thing. It pulls, pulls that trailer up the side of a mountain effortlessly let us know when you want to sell it <laughs> <laughs> i'm prohibited you know that that blue truck is the reason that our logo is blue that truck started this company and uh my wife gives me a hard time about it every so often because i, re- I don't really drive it all that often anymore and she says you know we should really get rid of that and i said no we should put it on a pedestal and we walk out the pedestal turns on the lights shine and angelic <laughs> music sings. <laughs> like got, a, every LB7 owner, right, is like just their wet dream right there. Is like, no, I'll never get rid of it. I literally will make it a monument. Yep, yep. The only thing I did uh, to improve on that scenario, being as the truck is an 03, is the communication systems inside the 03s were the same as the 04s, the 04 and a half, and the 05. So I got rid of those uh, 40,000 mile injectors and I switched the truck over to LLY. Oh, nice. 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 Not not a suggestion I would make to most of our standard listeners, by and, the way. And you don't want to sell your truck because otherwise you ain't going to make it to Boy Scouts and PTA meetings and stuff. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got one more scenario for you here today, Guy. Um, I got a 2011 LML. Everybody knows that's my favorite truck. I want to make 1,000 horsepower at the crank. I don't care about the cost. I don't care about anything else. What should I do? Oh, yeah, great question. Uh, love the LMLs. Boy, the block is just superior. Uh, it's a compact graphite block, so it's stronger than, than even the M's and the Z's. Uh, much better material in the cylinder heads as well. So we've got a really good foundation to start with. My suggestion on this one is going to be uh, pretty much our Stage 2 build. We're going to go with Stage 2 cylinder heads. Um, we're going to drive this on the street and do some towing at all, or is it just dedicated racing? Uh, dedicated racing. All right, so I'm going to go with the 9100 camshaft, uh, billet main caps. We're going to go with main girdle, obviously head studs, main studs, uh, O-ring the block, 
and um, we just have a new product coming out. Actually, we're going to release next week billet injector clamps for the LML. Ooh. Ooh, shiny stuff. I love it. High perf. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love high perf shit. Yeah, that leaves us, in all of these builds and all these scenarios, really, I think we've got a pretty good handle on, on the Duramax engine as far as everything that's, that's failing on them. Um, and 1,000 horsepower is really going to be pretty effortless. But uh, moving into the guys that are dedicated drag racers, right, we've got some guys in the super street class, 6,000-pound class. Oh, yeah. You know, running low nines, you know, 150-plus, 155-mile-an-hour these are the guys that are putting down, you know, seventeen or eighteen hundred at the rear tire. Um, the crankshaft has really become a problem, and fundamentally, guys, the block is just too short. There's not enough meat in the crankshaft between the rod journals and the main journals. Really, um, that intersection right there. You know, in an ideal situation, we'd like to make the block longer. We'd like to move the bores apart. We'd like to get some more meat in the crankshaft between the intersection of the rod and the mains. Um, but I noticed that we had an, uh, a whole lot of material in the rod that wasn't being used by the bearing. So what we started doing is we're narrowing the rods, and we're increasing the intersection material-wise between the rod and the main journals on our new billet crankshafts. Really? And this is adding uh, 6% more material in that area. So this is, this is something we're pretty excited about for all of the guys that just want to make as much power as they possibly can. And I don't love. have a budget like Paul. <laughs> Boy, right. Paul must have got a raise, and I didn't know about this. This is, this is kind of making me irritated as I listen to this more yeah, and more. You, you haven't been getting that podcast check every month? No. Come on, bro. <laughs> <laughs> what, are you getting double check? Dang. I was doing this as a volunteer. <laughs> Sucker. Um, guy, we really appreciate you coming on the show so much today. But how can we get a hold of you? Oh, fantastic. Good question. Uh 24 hours a day, our website, shop.socaldiesel.com. Lots of good technical information, valve adjustment procedures, all the torque specs for all the generation Duramaxes are there. During regular business hours, SoCal Diesel, we are on the West Coast in Southern California. So remember, guys, Pacific Standard Time, 661-775-5620. Again, operators are standing by. Call now. <laughs> I love that. This guy, guy that the is best a trip. Ever. Guy, guy is a trip. Is a trip. <laughs> I love that. Guy, thanks again so much for joining us. This has been Paul Wilson. And I'm Danny Voss. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. Calibrated Power Solutions, the leading North American developer of clean diesel power and home of DuramaxTuner.com, is the proud sponsor of the Diesel Performance Podcast. Calibrated Power develops emissions-equipped tunes for a wide variety of diesel powertrains, including the Duramax, Cummins, Jeep, John Deere, and many more. For more information and the best customer service in the industry, check out calibratedpower.com or call 815-568-7920. That's 815-568-7920. To reach out to the Diesel Performance Podcast, send us a message through Facebook or email paul at duramaxtuner.com or danny at duramaxtuner.com. What is your job title over there at SoCal? I am uh, president, CEO, and uh, head janitor. So <laughs> I, uh, I take out the trash, and as president, I get to decide when to take out the trash. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm plant manager over here. I water all the plants. Yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. <laughs>